Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose. Algeria is different. Africa's largest country is a place that few people, especially from the Western Academy, have ever been able to visit, research, or work in. Nearly two-thirds of Algeria's population is under the age of 35. Growing up during or soon after the violent conflict that racked Algeria during the 1990s and amid the powerful influences of global online culture, this generation tends to view the world much differently than their parents or grandparents do. My guest today, Andrew Farrand, has just written a book called The Algerian Dream, Youth and the Quest for Dignity. It invites readers to discover this new generation, their hopes for the future, and most significantly, the frustrations that brought them into the streets en masse since 2019, peacefully challenging a long-established order. Anybody who teaches about Arab culture or about the contemporary Middle East and North Africa should check out this book, clearly written, it's easily accessible by an undergraduate audience, and should be a welcome addition to any classroom. Here's my interview with Andrew about the Algerian dream. Andrew Farrand, welcome to the New Books Network. Our traditional first question is about yourself. Um, So tell us a little bit about where you're from, your academic background, and, and what led you to become interested in Algeria in the first place. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and I grew up um, with a bit of a sort of intellectual curiosity about, about the outside world, you might say, and was interested in different regions, different languages, different cultures uh, from a, a pretty early age. And that led me to Georgetown University uh, in Washington, DC where I was in the School of Foreign Service studying international relations and a a very mixed curriculum, um, but globally focused. And I had spoken French, um, but studied French by that point for for a number of years, but uh, was also able to begin studying Arabic at Georgetown and to visit a few countries in the Middle East, Syria, Jordan, um, and study further there. And after graduating from Georgetown, I began working in Washington in the field of international development uh, at a series of NGOs, uh, one of which led me to Morocco to, uh, to live there for a year, doing, doing some work uh, also in that international development space. And um, I essentially bounced back and forth between DC and, and uh, various assignments abroad for a number of years. And... Uh, in 2012, one of those assignments uh, led me to Algeria. So I was working at the time for the National Democratic Institute and 
Um, Algeria was having some elections, a number of, you know, new programming opportunities opened up at that time and, and allowed me to, uh, take my first trip to the country, which I readily accepted, but, uh, at the same time, didn't know a lot about the place and didn't find a lot of information on it either. Um, when I was looking before heading out. So, um, how did you come to write this book? Uh, the Algerian Dream, Youth, and the Quest for Dignity is is kind of a chronicle of events from uh, over the last decade, um, from from the period you're talking about with the, the elections uh, to the most recent uh, series of, of uprisings. Um, what, what led you in the direction of deciding that you wanted to put this down on, on paper? I would go back to that first trip I took to the country and, and just uh, the challenge of finding information on Algeria was something that kind of surprised me. Uh, having traveled a bit already by that point, I was familiar with being able to walk into a bookstore and pick up a, a selection of books on pretty much any place in the world. And Algeria just didn't have that. Uh, at the time, I remember that the most recent, uh, you know, even travel guidebooks were were five or ten years old. Um, and then there was a real dearth of um, stories and research and information about what the country was like uh, in the present day. There, there was a few books about the history of the country, but really very little about contemporary Algeria. Uh, so that really stuck with me. Uh, when I first left and then I got to Algeria, really found the place fascinating, uh, kind of fell in love with it and managed to get myself posted out there from 2013 through 2020. So I lived in the country for seven years and just never forgot that experience of not being able to find information about the place. And over time, as I lived there for seven years, observed so much uh, and worked on a series of youth development projects that took me all across the country. I really got to know the place pretty well and got to know uh, some of these young generations that, that I write about that I find so interesting. And over time, I realized that I might possibly be in a position to, to help fill that gap of information about the country uh, in the outside world and to help you know future people like me who might be looking for a book on the place to uh, have somewhere to turn to, to understand what it's like today and not just what it was like in previous centuries. And you hosted a talk show. I did. Yeah. This, uh, <laughs> the journey that I took once I got to Algeria was a bit, um, unexpected, shall we say, I certainly didn't expect it to lead, lead there, but I, uh, as I said, I was working on youth development projects, uh, helping young people in civil society, helping young people to find jobs, um, doing a lot of work around education and training and one of the assignments I had in the, the final year of my time there was to host a uh, reality television show. It was Algeria's first entrepreneurship reality TV show. It was called Andy Holum, or I Have a Dream. And it featured uh, 60 young entrepreneurs trying to compete in various challenges and, and uh, realize their dream of uh, starting a small business uh, and getting a lot of coaching and, and support along the way. But the project was um, a, an initiative kind of co-created by a local production firm and the U.S. Embassy in Algeria. And the, the goal was to try to give exposure to these young entrepreneurs. It's um, Algeria is a difficult country for young people to 
succeed in uh, in many ways, and and they have a lot of challenges that that they, that they face. Uh, but economic opportunity is a key one, and entrepreneurship has long been discussed as a potential solution to some of these challenges, but not a lot of people have found the magic formula. And this show was at least an attempt to to give some exposure to young people and help them uh, to leverage that exposure then to uh, get around some of the bureaucratic hurdles and financing hurdles and other things that the young people face when trying to start a business in Algeria. Mm-hmm. Um I want to come back to, 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 to the point you just made about uh, economic difficulty for, for this generation. But I, I want to start um, with, with an observation you make in your introduction, which is that Algeria is different. Um, and to sort of set the stage for our listeners, because many of them probably also will not be um, familiar with Algeria. You know, I myself have been going back and forth to the Arab world for 20 um, years now. And um, I've been to Morocco. I've been to Tunisia. I've flown over Algeria. Um, and I that, that's been about the bulk of my exposure to it. So what does it have in common with the rest of, of North Africa and the Arab world writ large? And, and how would you say that it's distinct? It's a great question, and I think it's an important one uh, to set the scene because so many people who are familiar with the region um, look at Algeria as sort of a black box. It's a place that they presume must have something to do with the countries around it, but they don't know much about it. And um, it is, in many ways, very unique, although there are some important similarities. Um, Listeners who are familiar with daily life and culture in Morocco and Tunisia. Uh, if they were to, to drop down into Algeria, they would recognize many things, but uh, it is quite distinct given its particular historical trajectory. Algeria was a French colony for 132 years after being uh, an Ottoman protectorate for many uh, years before that. And so it uh, does not share that that deep colonial history uh, necessarily with some of its neighbors. And that history really shaped um, a lot of things about the culture. I, just as an anecdote, I mentioned early in the book that when uh, you go to Algeria and you ask for khubz, the word for bread in Arabic across the Arab world, only in Algeria will they hand you a baguette, not a little round loaf of flat bread. So there are some traces of the colonial uh, period that you see in daily life and, and many deeper ones as well um, that, that recur. But I think also a um, major area of importance that distinguishes Algeria from its neighbors is also the process of breaking free from that colonial history and specifically the, the war of liberation that lasted from 1954 to Algeria's independence in 1962. Uh, This was seven years of extreme violence following on many decades of uh, subjugation of Algerians, uh, of settler colonialism. And so both the colonial experience and the experience of liberation were quite unique and and put Algeria on, as I said, a different historical path. Um, The discovery of oil around the time of independence and the central role that it played in Algeria's post-independence economy were also uh, very important in influencing its trajectory and its its past and current uh, economic situation. And I think 
you can see a real divergence in the 20th century between uh, Algeria and many of its neighbors that leads to it being culturally somewhat similar uh, on certain levels, but uh, historically, politically, in, in many other ways, quite distinct. It's interesting that you bring up the, the struggle for independence, because um, just judging from some of the conversations I've had with other scholars, I think that a lot of us will show portions of the Battle of Algiers in classes on the 20th century Middle East. And then, uh, as you said, Algeria just sort of falls out of the discussion um, after that point. So it's this great moment of decolonization, but then um, we don't do much with it, um, un- except, of course, possibly about the violence of the 1990s, um, which leads me into um, one of the things you talk about in your first chapter, which is not only the discussion of politics, but also the, scu- the discussion of generationality in politics, which, uh, for example, you describe how the at the time of the 2012 election, the the leadership of the FLN was encouraging um, very strongly the younger generation to participate in the political process, to vote, um, sacrificing their own, their being the older generation, sacrifices in cause of the nation. Um, but this this doesn't have the same resonance to this generation that grew up watching the country basically try to destroy itself in the 1990s. Um, so can we talk a bit more about this background, uh, the background of, of the new generation, of the generation you're writing about in your book and their perceptions of, of Algeria and, and what it means to be Algerian? Absolutely. This generation that is today in their 20s and 30s in Algeria, and you might even segment that into two sub-generations, um, they have a quite distinct outlook compared to their parents' and grandparents' generations. Their grandparents, of course, uh, knew the colonial period, might have been educated in the colonial period, might have supported the resistance against France, and uh, their parents likely grew up in an Algeria that today is looked back on, uh, looked back on as a as a golden age uh, of the 1970s, an age of prosperity, uh, an age of rapid growth, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution. Uh, so, the Algeria, however, of the 80s and 90s is a very different place. Uh, the oil crash of 1986 started to put significant pressure on Algeria's government and its ability to support a very generous subsidy system. This led to major protests in 1988 and the political liberalization process that the government initiated uh, in response in 1989. And soon uh, after that liberalization, the uh, a major Islamist party emerged, was well positioned to combat the, uh, the then longtime uh, ruling party, the FLN, in the polls. And many Algerians voted for this Islamist party uh, really as a, as a sort of protest vote against the FLN. They also had significant support of their own, but uh, for many it was a way to reject um, years of, uh, of frustration and, and a lot of the, these challenges around the social contract that unraveled in the 1980s. And soon uh, the Islamist party swept to victory in those elections. 
the army decided that this was an unacceptable outcome and uh, that that the result of the Islamist party's victory would be, uh, in the famous words of uh, an American diplomat at the time, um, one man, one vote, one time. And so the election results were annulled, the army seized power, uh, and the Islamists took to the hills to begin a uh, what would become a 10-year uh, period of, of violent uh, guerrilla warfare against the state with civilians caught in between. Uh, so this was a particularly traumatic, traumatizing experience for any Algerian alive at the time. Uh, those, of course, who are in their 30s today would have been children in that period and, and do often have memories of it. Um, some are deeply traumatized by it. But for them, you know, that's where Algeria's uh, story starts to become real. They've learned about what came before it. They learned about it in school. They've heard about it from family. It's an important part of their national identity. And, and so it's an important part of their conception of who they are. But it's not something that, that they lived through personally. And then, of course, um, you know, the second half of, of what you would call the youth today, um, those are in their 20s they mostly don't even have any memory of the 1990s. And so they're an even further degree separated from that earlier portion of the country's post-independence history. And so for these two cohorts, uh, there's much more of a focus on the here and now. And I think that a lot of the events that I witnessed during my years in the country are driven by that extremely different historical perspective um, and, and that kind of break in perspective between today's youth and those who came before them. The subtitle of your book is Youth and the Quest for Dignity, um, which, it, I mean, it, it grabs you. It's, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, an intriguing question. Um, so let me ask just directly, what, what do you mean by that? And why does this younger generation feel as though they lack dignity and that they need to claim it for themselves? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they necessarily feel they lack dignity, but I believe that something very central to the Algerian identity is that we have a right to feel dignity and we have a, we have human rights as people. Um, it's important to remember that Algeria, uh, you know, unlike a lot of the monarchies in the region and unlike some of the um, other states in the region and republics in the region that, that were founded on in different ways and for different reasons and in different circumstances, Algeria is really a country that is founded on ideals. And it's a country that uh, is founded on this, this, um, this story of resistance, resistance for a cause, resistance for the rights of the people. And that spirit and those principles have animated a lot of what Algeria has, has done since and are very central to the state's story of, of what the country is all about and really what many Algerians believe the country is all about. So dignity is something that uh, I believe every Algerian feels a strong attachment and right to, and yet at the same time, they feel that perhaps uh, has has been eroding over, over recent years and over the period that I focus on in particular in the book. Um, the title of the book, The Algerian Dream, is uh, is really my attempt to 
uh, frame and understand what this young generation is seeking. And it's not a question that a lot of people have asked. As I mentioned, there's, there's relatively little research and scholarship on contemporary Algeria today and relatively few people who are able to access the country and get to know it well enough to, to ask or answer this question. So the book is my attempt to explore what are the different facets of this Algerian dream. And I identified eight of them uh, that I cover in the first part of the book. And the central thread running through those eight themes, uh, which, which we can talk about in more detail individually, but the central thread that unites them is this sense that the government isn't holding up its end of the bargain. And there is a social contract that is not being honored. And that the younger generations and the population in general has a need and a right to stand up to the leaders and say, we deserve what's ours. And and those are, in a few words, uh, the events that I witnessed and the kind of trajectory of the, the last few years of Algeria's history. The, the, the first chapter reminds me of uh, my visits to Egypt uh, in the 2010s. Uh, sorry, in the, the 2000s prior to the, mm-hmm. uh, to the uprising. I actually not been back since 2011. Um, but there's just this sort of you bring up politics and there's a sort of sigh and maybe an eye roll um, and muttering something about things not changing. And then the conversation changes. Um, Is that sort of a similar uh, reaction of of what's happening? Because one of the things I got uh, very much out of the section on politics was the, just the sort of, inflexibility of the system and a lot of lip service uh, to undelivered promises. Uh, is, is that relatively accurate? I'd say that's true, although there was a moment when it wasn't necessarily going to be that way. And uh, I do talk about this this important moment that I witnessed early in my time in Algeria back in 2012, uh, shortly after the Arab Spring. Algeria had not witnessed nearly as much unrest as many neighboring countries for a variety of reasons, but uh, was was trying to uh, sweep things under the rug, you could say, and get everybody moving past that uh, unpleasant phase. And, and the government was eager to nudge things along. And President Bouteflika gave a major speech in May of 2012, in which he declared that his generation which means its orchard had ripened, its time had passed. And this was a really uh, bit of an earthquake of a statement coming in the context of rather sclerotic politics in Algeria. And it was a moment that I think caused a lot of people to maybe perk up and and listen for a moment and, and say, is this genuinely an opportunity for change? And so there was momentarily more interest in, in a political system that for many years had been quite predictable and that many Algerians, especially young Algerians, had felt very disconnected from. Um, but the fact that that statement was followed by so much more of the same 
was extremely disheartening, I think, for a generation. And so seeing President Bouteflika uh, go from that speech to having a major health crisis that put him in a wheelchair, largely unable to move, unable to speak, but continuing to run the country, and then the audacity of Bouteflika's re-election in 2014, just, just another year later, uh, and the fact that for five more years he continued to run the country in a state where many people doubted whether he was calling the shots uh, day to day. This continued to, I think, kind of rankle on the, um, you know, in the minds of, of many Algerian citizens and particularly young people who just felt that it wasn't dignified for such a great country to be uh, run by somebody who wasn't able to run it and then possibly by a shadowy cast of advisors and, and others behind the scenes. So this contributed to a lot of the frustration that built during these years. How did this frustration manifest itself? One thing about Algeria that people don't necessarily know if they haven't been there is Algeria for many of the years I dis- I'm discussing, so from the sort of 2013 to 2018 period, Algeria was a place that saw a pretty wide array of statements uh, against the government, of actions against the government. So for a country that is often classified from the outside as being authoritarian, um, it did in some ways allow a wider array of free speech than some other countries possibly in the region. Um, But the fact of having a sometimes loud and feisty press uh, and sometimes, you know, allowing people to speak their minds freely in the cafes and things like this uh, didn't necessarily translate into political change at the top. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the other features of this uh, kind of climate during those years was that there were also many protests. So people didn't just speak, they also protested. And there was a longstanding phenomena in Algeria of micro protests, extremely localized over often localized issues. Uh, but they managed, the, the government managed to keep these rather atomized and would treat the symptoms locally when they needed to be treated, throw some of the oil wealth uh, that they enjoyed at the problem solve it in a particular locality and move on to the next day when they would probably have to solve the same problem in another region. But this worked for many years until I think a uh, a growing sense of frustration, indignity, and impatience with the macro picture mm-hmm. led Algerians to um, escalate things to, to another level and to take these protests from being uh, micro localized events to a national movement that broke out in 2019. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to that uh, in a bit. Um, I want to go back to the comment that you made earlier about uh, the frustration over um, the lack of economic opportunity or, or how difficult it is to sort of make a living um, as a younger person. Can you expand more on on that, which is something that you cover in uh, in chapter three. Correct. There's a number of obstacles that I detail in that chapter. Uh, red tape is a huge one. There's a very legalistic culture and obsession with 
stamps and seals and signatures in Algeria that makes it very difficult to get a lot of things done for anyone who's not politically connected. This is, of course, all the more so the case for young people who are especially uh, not politically connected. And there are also a number of other features of the economy, which I trace back uh, directly or indirectly to the effects of uh, this, this longstanding reliance on oil and gas wealth that have really warped so many facets of the Algerian economy um, to the extent that, as I detail through a, a number of anecdotes, uh, there are really, uh, there's really just a a kind of loss of normal rules of supply and demand in the country. And day-to-day life just does not respect the basic rules of economics that hold in many other countries. Um, So, you know, I I talk in the book about trying to hail a taxi and and finding the taxi driver refuses to take you because he just doesn't need the money and he'd rather go the direction he wants to go. And, uh, you know, just lots of ways in which Algerians just don't seem to be chasing money. And, as a visitor there, uh, compared to the experience of visiting Morocco or Tunisia, where there are lots of tourists, that can be quite refreshing. Um, but it is also a bit strange in, in many situations. And uh, it just makes it difficult to predict what's coming next often because events in the economy tend to follow from decisions on high rather than from normal market rules that one might be able to predict. So this makes it an extremely difficult investing and business environment, uh, even for seasoned business people, and again, all the more so for young people. And another facet that's quite important is uh, the currency situation. Algeria artificially elevates the value of its currency as as an indirect means of earning more from its oil exports. But of course, this leads to its uh, other exports being very uncompetitive, and if people can't export, they don't hire for their factories and for their their businesses. So the end result is that Algeria is extremely reliant on oil and gas and has very little else going on, uh, particularly in the formal sector. There is a bustling informal sector alongside it, but this tends to be quite small scale. And in the end, what it means is that as a young person, uh, you are trying to figure out your way. You look at entrepreneurship, you say, I'm going to be stuck on red tape if I go this way. You try to get a job and you find that because of the limited hiring and the large numbers of young people, there's around 30% unemployment among youth. So it's extremely competitive, extremely difficult to get a job. And then maybe you end up in the informal sector, kind of puttering around, underemployed. uh, But these are not good options. And These are not good options for a country that guarantees a right to education and a right to work in its constitution. Uh, Algerians expect better than this. And I think that the story of the period I cover is really, again, going back to this this story of dashed expectations. uh, I believe that the expectation of I will study, I will be able to find an opportunity afterwards to be able to start a family Um, many of those things might have been possible back in the 70s and in their parents' generation, but they're extremely difficult today, which is why you have such high degrees of frustration, high degrees of emigration away from Algeria, legal or illegal, uh, and ultimately why, I think, uh, partly why you had a large 
protest movement in recent years. Yeah, uh, I was going to say minus the oil and gas uh, to supplement this. This sounds very much like um, the situation in Tunisia, which, of course, was the first country to uh, start the Arab Spring, as, as it's become known. Um, but I was there about six months after the revolution, and it was it was fascinating how everyone just seemed to be trying to pretend it hadn't happened um, <laughs> because, you know, the things are very slow to change, even when they're very fast to change. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting parallel. And, and looking at Algeria compared to um, places like Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, countries that have a lot of similarities, but that might not have that vast oil wealth. Um, if you think about it from an Algerian perspective, and in, in lots of discussions with young Algerians, I kept hearing this sort of thing of, you know, we, we, we kind of understand that life is difficult in Tunisia. I mean, they have to, they have to really scrabble for it. And yet, Algeria has all this oil wealth. And so in some ways, the fact of that wealth only raises expectations more when uh, Algerians stop and think about the fact that their rulers really do have all the means at hand to resolve these kinds of challenges and to make sure that people have a dignified life, uh, economic opportunity being part of that. Right. And of course, the, the question of out-migration is also fraught with difficulty because, um, as we've seen uh, in France being, you know, one of the primary destinations um, is not particularly welcoming um, to uh, North African immigrants. Right. And there's a growing sense in Algeria that that's the case. Um, and it's, it's quite frustrating kind of compounds a lot of these frustrations because for many years, France was uh, a bit of a promised land for, for some Algerians who were looking to escape and to make their way elsewhere. Um, the fact that life in France is now starting to be understood as, as quite difficult means that Algerians are looking at other options, Spain, Italy, you know, Belgium, so looking at other countries. But also, again, taking another look at Algeria and trying to figure out if they can make their way there. Uh, there have been periods that I saw where there was more or less hope that, that Algeria might be a place where a young person could uh, could make their way. I know a number of my friends during my time in Algeria were Algerians who had been able to go abroad for studies, for work, whatever, and, and come back uh, and try to start a new business there and seeing them get frustrated as well uh, and and eventually give up in many cases was uh, was a particularly difficult thing to watch uh, and a sign of just how challenging the environment is. Uh, and of course, you know, thinking again about what it could be, it's extremely uh, disappointing for many young people to uh, to compare that that potential with the reality. Mm-hmm. On the sort of topic of, of reality, um, one of your other chapters covers uh, issues around, as you, as you phrase it, information, truth, and knowledge, um, which, which uh, raises some very interesting questions. Can, can you touch on some of those for us? Sure. I talk about a pretty wide range of, uh, of dates in that chapter, going all the way back to the independence struggle and the fact that... Even today, so much of what happened during that struggle is kind of clouded in secrecy. 
Um, there are pretty well-documented cases of FLN leaders committing abuses, committing assassinations against one another. Um, and these events are just never discussed, uh, not really seen as something that the government will will allow. Uh, many of Algeria's own records of the war and what happened during that time remain closed off and extremely difficult to access within the country. And then, of course, a large amount of the information about what happened during that conflict is in France and in the archives in Aix-en-Provence. And so there are uh, a lot of questions that Algerians have about this most fundamental period in modern Algeria's history and the one on which the entire legitimacy of the state has rested for decades. And then from there, um, similar questions exist about every historical period since then. Can I, can I, sorry, can I, can I just ask how easy is it to actually ask these questions? I mean, I'm in Texas, um, and you may have seen that this summer there was this huge kerfuffle over a couple of historians who wanted to call out some of the pervasive myth-telling around the Alamo, um, and they've, you know, events were canceled mm-hmm. at, you know, the request of high political officials, etc. You know, so, so how easy is it to actually question these things publicly? It's challenging. Um, this is a big reason why many Algerian scholars end up abroad. It's a big reason why many foreign scholars are not allowed into Algeria, or if they manage to get into Algeria, they have a lot of difficulty accessing archives. So among those who who I know, um, many of them tend to focus on historical questions because as sensitive as those historical questions are, uh, some of the contemporary ones are, are seen as even more sensitive. So there's very uh, few people focusing on modern Algerian politics and, and a lot of these questions um, that I was able to, to observe uh, during my time there. So it's, a, I think, just a, a very difficult environment when you are growing up in a country and trying to understand who you are and what your history is all about. And you can't really find basic questions, uh, find basic answers to the questions you have, or the answers that are provided don't really add up. Uh, So many of these factors, I think, also make some young people... um, feel a bit uncomfortable with what their leaders are telling them. Um, it's not everybody, of course, but but certainly some are are skeptical of these stories. And, and then, you know, they look around and try to find information on what's happening today. Uh, there's lots of doubts that are raised about official statistics that are produced today. There's very few statistics, statistics to begin with. So for somebody like me who's trying to write a book about the country, uh, even though I knew it quite well and I'd been collecting information about it for years during my time there, I was really having a, a difficult time um, just finding basic numbers. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly strange place in this regard when you compare with most other countries in the world. Um, there's just an incredible vacuum of information about what's happening in the country today. And... So you might be able to find statistics on what Algeria imported or exported in 
2011. But for 2021, uh, in this day and age, good luck, you're going to be waiting a long time. And then you may have doubts about the veracity of that information anyway. So um, all of this just raises a lot of challenges for people trying to make decisions in daily life. If you don't know the reality of what's happening around you, if you feel that the press is being intimidated and you, so you can't even necessarily trust what's in the newspapers, uh, which is increasingly the case in the last two years. There's um, a lot of difficulties in making investment decisions, making life decisions. Um, and then there's a lot more, I think, deeper challenges around these historical questions that touch on identity and uh, a larger sense that you just can't tell what's true. So again, these are not unfamiliar challenges to uh, to anyone who's studied other countries in the region, but there's a particular confluence of them in Algeria that I think is quite disorienting for, for many people there. Yeah. And, um, you know, as, as I've observed in my, my own time, and even in my, in my classes today, you know, where we're um, living under this, the, the new sort of Damocles in the classroom is, you know, critical race theory, um, is, you know, my, my students know that they're be gi- being given a particular version of events. Um, they're, they're not being fooled. It's like, and, and so these debates are really very esoteric because on the ground, they're not fooling anybody, Right. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I've seen this in, in other parts of the region too. It's like every, everybody knows they're not being told things, but we they're still doing it anyway. Yep. No, very much, very much the case. Um. So in 2019, as you mentioned, um, things came to a head. Um, the sort of long delayed Arab Spring, <laughs> if you will, uh, uh, sort of morphed into. Um, in, into the uh, into a series of, of uprisings. Um, so what, what happened? What changed? A couple of things changed in the preceding years. Um, it's important to note that there was a lot of positives in the period that I cover mm-hmm. in the years preceding this uprising. Um, rising standards of living, oil wealth that was able to... Uh, allow a lot of imported goods. So, so there's some underlying economic problems there, but at least people were able to buy more consumer goods. Uh, this led to some superficial but important changes in, in people's daily lives in Algeria. But again, uh, these issues of indignity and a refusal from above to fix the underlying causes of those indignities was simmering all along and in some ways growing worse. I I document a number of events in the fall of 2018 that I think really kind of crystallized some of this frustration that had been growing over the years. Um, One thing was that there was a rising business class that seemed to warm its way into the upper reaches of government and, and was increasingly flaunting its wealth and flaunting its influence. And I think that this uh, was very unsettling for many Algerians uh, for whom egalitarianism is is an important principle and 
And so seeing people so audacious about their wealth um, was was quite uh, frustrating. And there were a number of particular incidents. Um, I talk about the death of a young boy in Algiers uh, whose parents couldn't get him some very basic uh, medical care for, for a simple lung infection. Uh, and this young boy ended up dying in an Algiers hospital in the capital of the country that has supposedly got the best healthcare system in on the African continent. Uh, and none of this felt like what Algeria should be to many Algerians. And so amid this growing wave of frustration with Algeria's reality, again, compared to that potential, uh, an election was approaching. And in 2019, Algeria was scheduled to have another presidential election. President Bouteflika at that point had been basically out of the public eye almost entirely for five years and counting because of uh, a stroke in 2013. Again, I mentioned earlier, there were doubts about whether he was even running the country. And amid that, the people at the top could not come to consensus on another candidate. And Bouteflika ultimately was announced as the consensus candidate for the FLN and other ruling parties, despite all of this, uh, all these factors running, running against him. And uh, this moment just was really the straw that broke the camel's back was, was the moment when Algerians decided they, they were fed up. Um, there were a number of sporadic protests in the days after this announcement in several countries, uh, several cities in the east of Algeria, small communities and, and mid-sized cities. And then on February 22nd, 2019, this spilled over into Algiers and most other major cities of the country in the form of mass protests that only grew in the weeks after that. Um, and it was something that Algeria hadn't seen in a generation. Um, and it was something that certainly caught the political leadership by surprise. So, so what was the outcome of this? Um, what changed? One of the immediate results was that these mass protests of, of millions of Algerians put enough pressure on many of the regime's allies uh, that people started to defect from Bouteflika's camp. And there was a rolling wave of defections as the protests continued uh, throughout March of 2019. Um so people from judges to political party members uh, to key members of administrative bodies, you know, a lot of different institutions that supported the president uh, in this kind of constellation of, of uh, allies started to defect. And as they fled the ship, uh, it became clear that Bouteflika's chances were also crumbling. And so within just a couple weeks of the protest starting, um, reportedly because of a decision by the army to withdraw their support ultimately for the president, Bouteflika resigned from office. And this triggered a, a long transition process that, uh, was defined by continued protest. Uh, so the, the protests continued all throughout 2019 and into early 2020. 
um, as the government tried to slowly regain control of the situation um, through a, a number of measures. But ultimately, um, in late 2019, a new president, Abdelmajid Taboun, was elected, and he and his new administration began trying to, uh, as they would see it, get, get the situation back under control. Um, obviously, 2020 got very difficult for Algeria, like, like every other country in the world, because of the pandemic. Um, but but even before that, the country was facing a lot of crises and was really uh, mired in a political stalemate between a core of protesters that just kept coming out week after week for uh, Friday protests under the banner of this Hirak movement uh, and the government that was trying to put an end to it any way they could. So... You have seen uh, basically a long period of stalemate since that initial victory of pushing Bouteflika out of office uh, with many ups and downs and twists and turns, but but the result is uh, today that it's quite messy, to, to put it uh, in a nutshell. Uh, I hate to ask this, but I'm going to. Um, where... Do you have any sense of where this might be heading based on your experience and what you've learned about the country? If you had to gaze into the crystal ball. Sure. What we're seeing today is um, something of a new chapter that has followed from this historic protest movement. Um, the protests were paused by the protesters themselves during the pandemic and restarted after the pandemic, but were eventually tamped out by an increasingly strong wave of repressive tactics from the government. So arrests just continued to multiply. People were arrested for comments on Facebook, um, other, you know, very small quote unquote offenses. Um, Media outlets have been intimidated. Key political figures have also been locked up. Uh, Hundreds of people are, essentially in jail as political prisoners today. And the movement appears to have been stamped out and the government um, appears to believe that it has, uh, has won a victory there. It has moved forward with a constitutional referendum, legislative elections, basically trying to turn the page in every way it can think of to uh signal the start of a new era, that era of protest is behind us and we need to move forward is very much the message today. But fundamentally, none of the underlying frustrations that caused the Hirak's eruption, aside from the fact that Bouteflika was the president at the time, nothing else has changed. And so you have a new guy in office uh, that was one among many demands that were voiced during the course of the protest and certainly um, not the only one. So challenges around the economy remain and if anything have have grown much worse uh, over the course of the pandemic. Challenges around the lack of opportunities for political expression remain. A lot of the other challenges that I document in the book around the right to and the ability to access information and, and knowledge have remained blocked as well as uh, 
more um, kind of bread and butter issues around housing, around healthcare, around education. Uh, these are all areas of continued frustration in many ways uh, for young people and for Algerians in general. So looking forward, uh, it's hard to see given the government's pattern of refusal to reform. Uh, it's hard to see that changes are going to come from the top or that the government is likely to reform of its own accord. So I think um, we're more likely to see a period of simmering for a while until potentially something small uh, and, and difficult to predict causes it to erupt again. Um, what everybody who follows Algeria closely and, and knows Algeria well hopes is that that doesn't lead to violence at all, uh, as it has in, in some cases in Algeria's history. But uh, I hope that 2019 is an example of what can be achieved if, you know, through peaceful means, if Algerians are able to speak with a clear enough voice around a clear enough set of, of objectives. Um, that, of course, has been a challenge of the movement. I, I don't want to exaggerate uh, that point at all, but at least the initial protests, clarity around the rejection, for example, of Bouteflika's candidacy led quite quickly to an end to that candidacy. So that kind of mobilization can be effective. Uh, there was not enough clarity in the months after that to coalesce around a smaller set of demands to voice those demands and then to continue protesting to ensure that those demands were met. So there were relatively few achievements that could be pointed to in the months after Bouteflika's resignation. But I do think that there are a lot of lessons to be drawn from that experience. And I do know a lot of young Algerians who are involved in that movement who have been thinking very deeply and critically and discussing these questions amongst each other and I think are going to be ready when the moment comes to to step out and make new demands and try for another round and, and hopefully have some success in forging a broader set of changes besides just changing the figurehead. <laughs> So our traditional final question is, uh, what are you doing now? What's, what's your next project? So right now, uh, I have recently accepted a position as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. So I'm continuing to follow Algeria very closely uh, to write periodic analyses on events in the country uh, in, in that regard. It's a bit different these days following it from afar for, for the last year and a half, being outside of Algeria since 2020, but uh, I'm, I'm getting used to it and getting a little more information from the newspapers and from some other sources that I trust, and uh, not being able to, to see things in daily life is, is a little different for me, for sure, because I felt like I could learn a lot from that, but... Uh, yeah, I'm still following the country closely, and I think it's still a place that holds a lot of lessons for the outside world and that the outside world could still benefit from learning more about. So that's a key part of what I'm working on these days. Excellent. The Algerian Dream, Youth and the Quest for Dignity, was published in 2021 by New Degree Press. It's also available as an ebook. Andrew Farrand, thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure.